Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. Welcome to Collect Call from Sing Sing. So this week, I want you all to check out my friend Joseph Wilson. He's in here with me in Sing Sing, and he's an opera composer. No shit, an opera composer. Sing Sing has like a music program and puts on concerts a few times a year. So I met Joe Wilson back in uh, 2017. I saw Joseph Wilson sing on stage with a Grammy Award-winning opera soprano singer, Joyce DiDonato. This woman's like, she sings in like the Met. And it was just an amazing experience. I had just transferred in from Attica. And uh, needless to say, I'd never experienced uh, an opera at any time in my life, but uh, certainly not in prison. So that's how I met Joe. And just a bit about the, uh, the Sing Sing music program. It began in 2009 when a Sing Sing programs administrator invited a group of Carnegie Hall musicians to come in and play with uh, a prison band. It was an instant connection soon after the Sing Sing Musical Connections program was born. So basically, these guys have like professional Carnegie musicians that come in and uh, sort of practice with them on weekends. And then a couple times a year, they put on a uh, a concert for the population. I just so happened to sort of attend this concert. It was just sort of blew me away. So there's a popular trope that we say in prison, us guys in here are more than our crime. But, you know, sometimes we don't hear the specifics, but this is the more, this kind of story of uh, of Joe Wilson. So before we hear from him, let's get a bit of backstory. This is from a feature magazine I published in 2000. So a feature story in a magazine uh, I published about the whole music program. It was in uh, Pacific Standard. And the title was, I Can Be Free Again, How Music Brings Healing at Sing Sing. So never ran, never will is the gangster bravado motto that people use to explain Brownsville, Brooklyn, with its blocks and blocks of low-income housing projects. Even the grungiest hipsters who've pretty much invaded Brooklyn in the recent years, still stay away from Brownsville. Growing up there in the crack era of the 1980s, Joseph Wilson was surrounded by crack dealers and addicts. His mother was an addict, so his grandmother wound up raising him and teaching him to love music. She made him go to church, and he sang in the junior choir. Joe's grandmother had an eclectic record collection, Delphonics, Herbie Hancock, Andre Crouch, and she would have him play them when he helped her clean their two-bedroom apartment. When he was 11, his mother had twins, who were also handed to Grandma. By the time the twins were one, Joe remembers he and his sister, Miosha, would watch the movie Five Heartbeats together, and she'd sing along. Soon, Joe's grandmother died, and the twins wound up in foster care. Joe went to live with his uncle, the neighborhood preacher, a massive man who owned a storefront church. In the two apartments above, Joe shared the living space with a football team's worth of other boys whom his uncle took in from the neighborhood. Many of their mothers looked to the preacher as a positive male role model. 
Joe's father, like all the other boys' fathers, was out of the picture. The others would tell Joe that to make some cash, he could let one of his uncle's friends from the church do things to him. Before long, Joe's uncle was giving him a one-on-one tutorial on how to masturbate. Then there was the time when Joe's uncle caught him fooling around in a closet with a girl and made them act out what they were doing in front of him. Joe became uncomfortable in his home environment, and to escape, he listened to a Walkman in headphones all day and all night, paying close attention to the different rhythms of reggae and hip-hop. He consumed music in a dark, hopeless place. He would one day learn to compose it in an even darker place. At 16, he turned his back on the church and turned to the streets. By 17, he was serving his first prison sentence, one to three years for robbery. In 2005, Joe killed a 21-year-old man at a dispute over a Brownsville drug spot. In 2012, an NPR investigation revealed that Joe's neighborhood had the highest concentration of incarceration. Million-dollar blocks, they were called, because that's what the city and state of New York were spending annually to lock up the people who used to live on those blocks. By the time the story aired, Joe had become a part of that statistic, seven years into his 25 years to life bid for murder, tucked away in a maximum security cell block, where he would begin his unlikely career as a songwriter. Without any further ado, I'll give you Joseph Wilson. He called my producer a couple months back. I'll let you hear that conversation. Hello? I'm here. You're here. Amazing. Okay, so yeah, you have me, my name's Rachel, and then there's Jeff on the phone too. Hey, this is Jeff. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm well. John has given us some questions that he wants to ask, and because he can't call in at the same time, we're sort of, you know, stepping in for him. When did you meet John? How did you meet John? What did you think about John when you met him? Well, when I first met John, um, he had landed on my on the company I was on, and um, I know it's another white guy in prison. You know, you see him, and then they disappear. But you no, know, for some reason, I was I gravitated towards him because he just had this certain aura about him that said, well. I'm doing things. Like, you could tell that he was, like, moving and shaking. You could tell he was focused, and he was driven towards something. I didn't know what that something was, but I later found out that he was a writer. And I was interested in that because I'm an artsy type guy, and I'm also driven. And once I found out who he was, what he was doing, I became more interested in who he was, and we just began to gauge each other on a regular basis, like, on a genuine level. I kind of felt like he was a, a real cool guy. He was open and honest. You know, he didn't mind talking about himself, and I didn't mind learning about who he was, <laughs> which is also cool. At the point when you met John and he was doing his writing, were you also at the point where you were really serious about the music you were making, too? Yes, and I think that that, that was yeah. kind of the, the first bridge or the first connection, was that we were both pushing for, like, things that are not usually done where we, you know, where we happen to have landed. Um, I'm pushing for the Met, and he's pushing for, you know, I guess he's already attained the, you know, certain awards that he he did want, but he's pushing for more. Now he's doing a podcast. You know, he's still pushing to do things that are not normal here, that they're, they're right. not they're com- commonplace, kind of unprecedented. So I think those things are the things that that bonded us was the fact that we're both visionaries and both aspirational and looking to do things beyond what we what they say we can do, what people think that we can do. I would love to know about 
how music became a way for you to deal with your emotions or feelings or the things you wanted to communicate when you sort of realized that it was a thing you could use to help understand how you were feeling? Well, music is a few things. It's a, yeah. it's a way for me to express how I feel, mm-hmm. not necessarily understand the way that I feel. Okay. Or the, the way that I think about a thing, or you know, so forth and so on. But music was less about how I felt and more so about avoiding how I felt and escaping to somewhere else so I didn't have to feel the things that I was feeling at one point in time. Now it's about, okay, I want to open up and express how I'm feeling. So it was, it was at one point it was a refuge, and now it's actually the, the outside of my house that I can show to other people. Music for me is like, it's life. I don't even think about it as a separate thing for me. It's like who I am. Like I, I, I'll do things like the, count the way the light is flickering or listening to the breeze. You no, know, and, and I've, I've learned this from, you know, reading about what people call the greats and how they actually, you know, compose music way, way back in, in broke era and so forth and so on, where they didn't have radio or some other inspiration. They would just listen to nature. And I think that the mm-hmm. people walking, there's a cadence there, someone speaking, there's a, a rhythm or there's a, a melody there. And I think that I find those things and everything. And sometimes I just I feel a particular type of way. I do it on my keyboard and I'll express that, those feelings in rhythm or in a melody. And that's the way that I do that. How did the Carnegie program that came to Sing Sing help you to explore music? The Carnegie Hall music program was instrumental in exposing me to genres that I never thought I would be interested in. Classical music being the foremost. You know, of course, I've heard classical music is on everything that we've ever watched from Looney Tunes to a commercial. And I hear it and you know, it's in passion. But to actually like sit down, pay attention to it, and enjoy it for my own personal gratification was never even something I thought I would do. But now it's something I do more often than not. I mean, like I listen to classical music more than I listen to hip-hop or or or, um, or soul as much as I used to listen to those things a lot more often. But classical music um, is one of those things. It opened my eyes to those things, how to write music, how to appreciate music in, you know, in different ways. Um, not only in listening, but also in playing, and also having a group of people and camaraderie in music, mm-hmm. to have a sonic space in music to sometimes step away from the sonic space and enjoy and watch people create music. So there's a lot of things that it was a, that uh, the Carnegie Hall program led to me. Not only that, exposure to professional musicians and artists, such as George D. Donato, who was a big impact on why I even listen to classical music today. She had come in at one point in time, and we were asked to write a song for her. But I, like I said, I hadn't listened to much classical music, and what I wrote for her, I felt was subpar. So what I did was I, I, I delved into classical music, and once there, I kind of stayed there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and changed my trajectory of who I thought I would be totally, like... At one point in time, I thought maybe I'd just be a counselor or I'd be a businessman. But I, I, still probably, I still probably would be a businessman. But those were like my only options. Now my options are composer, playwright, libertist, uh, uh, songwriter. So it changed me in those ways. Do you have a composer or an artist that's your favorite or that you're particularly drawn to? Uh, of course. 
course. My favorite composer would have to be Igor Stravinsky. Mm. My favorite librettist, I would have to say, is John Corgliano, who wrote Ghost of Versailles. I just like the way that he used all of the old operas and history alongside it to make an opera buffa that was actually comical. It was super well you know, written uh, musically. No, contemporarily, I would say that he's probably one of the the best uh, opera writers and composers today, but my favorite is still Igor Stravinsky. Can you tell us about the opera that you've been working on and like what that process has been like, especially yeah, embarking on a project that is something you never thought you would do, it sounds like? Well, it's um, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought that it would, <laughs> I thought it would be much easier because I was uh, ignorant to all of the facets of what I would need to do. But it, but it's also enjoyable. So initially, I had I was in a, a program called CMP, which is a certificate, certificate of ministry and certificate of ministry and human services program. And in that program, I was given a task to write a parable. So that parable eventually was married to music. And this is around the same time that I happened to meet Joyce, and I was uh, becoming more interested in opera music. And I said, well, I'll write an opera, because I heard an opera, and I thought, well, I can do that. And um, I think that I didn't count the cost, but as I move on, I'm enjoying how much I'm paying for it. Like, I've never written dialogue. So when I bumped into having to write it, I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. So I had to read a lot of plays and a lot of stuff so delved into the uh, Bakery and Raising the Sun. I'm reading some contemporary arts like McTrump and Hello Stranger. And, you know, and I'm just reading and, and Macbeth. I'm, I'm reading plays to, to seek out how drama unfolds through dialogue and how to make those things happen. So I had to go into that. And then I had to learn different styles or rhythms and textures and polyrhythms and how to work with an orchestra or orchestrate for an orchestra without having having an orchestra available to me or never never hearing some of the instruments that I'm writing for live. So those are some of the handicaps that I've, I've bumped into, but regardless of those things, I'm still moving forward. And those are, those are, the, those are the challenges that are making me a stronger writer because I'm finding where my holes are and I'm filling them. And as I do that, I've become a, a better rounded human being because when you focus on heavily on things you don't know or things that are out there, you also have to rely on the fact that you don't really understand that you don't know those things and say to yourself, I can do them. When I have to write a paper, I may feel trepidations about it, but I know that I can do it because I've done other things without any information. So if I have some information, I'm better off for it. So it's affected me in a lot of ways. And that the process in itself has affected me in a lot of ways. And it's also fun, <laughs> creating the music in itself. I read John's article where he talks about you and then he talks about a lot of the other people in the music program. So it seems like... Yeah, but, so they have, but they're not doing opera is, is the difference, right? right? So they yeah. have different musical tastes. Like they're more... Right. Contemporary uh, Western Western uh, music, AB AB selections, mm-hmm. you no know, more pop music, uh, country music, blues, and things of that nature. And that doesn't help me when I have to write for uh, someone singing a line and then changing the music completely 
to alter the mood of someone else who's singing in another line. That's just not where they are. It's like, okay, wait a minute, it's like 10 seconds of music you just wrote, and you're changing everything for another 10 seconds of someone else saying something else. That's not really what I'm putting. I'm, I'm into, I want to write this, I want to feel good, I want to move on, and that's it. I want I want the, and I hate to say it this way, but I want the, I want the microwave music. It's, uh, I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote four bars, and I can make that to eight, and I can wait four more bars that match that, and make that to 16, and I can play that back and forth, and I'm done. And that's not what I'm doing. This is like painstaking work of delving into your character and how your character is feeling in each and every moment and being there and having the music communicate that in each and every moment, and that's just not where people are. John also talks about when he heard you sing for the first time, and when he writes about it, it's really powerful. He was very touched by it. But I'm wondering how it was for you to perform on stage and to perform something that was your own that you were working on. Honestly, I really don't like singing. <laughs> I guess it's because I've 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 sing, you know, since I was a kid. I was in the junior choir, the youth choir, so forth and so on. And I'm I'm kind of moving back towards singing again because I'm learning like sofeggio, and sofeggio is the art of. Uh, being able to call out a note or a distance from one note to the other, you know, out of your head. And in doing that, I have to sing. And I'm kind of enjoying singing again, but I digress. Uh, singing things that are my own, I, I don't I don't know. I, I guess I'm in the moment, I'm just transferring what I'm feeling then. And I connect with the audience and what the audience, audience's vibe is. And I just live in that particular moment. I'm... And I enjoy that moment for what it is, because I know that I know that that's all I have is that moment. You know, I'm one of these guys who say uh, there's no such thing as the future. There's only right now and yesterday. And I just live right there. So whatever the edge of the next moment is, that's all I have. So while I'm there, I'm just enjoying that, and I'm looking at the crowd and how the crowd is responding. And that's where I get the pleasure from. I get the pleasure from that that the crowd later on, you know, later on I might hear somebody humming the tune while they're walking down the hallway or. They might say, you know, give me a congratulations, I really like that, or whatever the case may be. But I live in the moment while I'm up there. I'm not, I'm not even myself. I don't even feel me. I'm just in the music with the person, with the crowd. That's it. With that said, have you ever surprised yourself? Like, look back on something you've done or written or sang and didn't expect that from yourself? All the time. <laughs> All the time. And I don't, I mean, like um, like I said, just trudging through moment by moment building on the opera. When I began the program, uh, Music Camp and Carnegie Hall programs, I wasn't given an instrument. So for the first few years, I just learned theory. Now I'm trying to learn to play piano more efficiently. And this, this, there's this gap between what I know theoretically and what my body is producing. And each day... I'm getting better with what my body's producing. And there was a time where I had a book. It was, and it's a basic, it's a book for a beginning pianist, budding pianist. And it was a time where it took me only three or four days to get through four measures. But today, I'm able to look at a page and get through the page. It's not perfect, but I can get through that page. It may not be in the, the speed or the time in which it should be in, but I'm able to get through the page. So every day, I'm, as I progress, and the way that I'm hearing things and the way that I'm doing things, I'm surprising myself. I'm like, okay, I got it. And I'm, I'm thankful for the friends, the and the friends who have helped me do that, right? One of those friends, I have to say, is Ivan Califf. Uh He and I, for the first three years of the program, 
because we didn't have instruments, we basically ran through theory and, and rhythm. So we would clap and stomp inside of our music room literally for hours. Um, there's another good gentleman who now has shown an interest in learning Sofeggio, which is a guy called Yoshi. His name is uh, Bao. He has, you know, every every Thursday night, he and I go down to my office, and we go through Sofeggio, and we challenge each other on distances between note values and uh, giving the, the correct pitch from a particular tonic note and things of that nature. So and those are the two people I would have to say that are inside here who have actually helped me in any way as far as uh, becoming a better musician and becoming a, 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 a better singer, you know, a better rounded person. My goal is I, I want to make the Met. I mean, like, that's my dream. I want to eventually make the Met, maybe even Sydney Opera House or something of that nature at the end of the day. Also... I want to leave something behind for others to grab onto. Recently, a friend of mine went home by the name of Kenyatta Hughes. And the day he went home, he did a concert uh, of a bevy of his own original songs in Carnegie Hall. And when I think about that, a man who I know, that I ate with, that I sat with, that I played music with, that I I sang with, that he was in the same place I, I am. And... He was able to do that. That's unprecedented. No one has ever left a correctional facility and went directly to a prestigious venue and and, and had a concert of their own. You know, unknown artists. And he did that. So I'm saying to myself, if he did that, then what can I do? And I want to be able to leave the same footprint for someone else. If he did that, what can I do? And I'm trying to do that while I'm here. I'm trying to do that when I leave. I'm trying to when I, whatever. I want to leave a footprint for other people who are who are wherever they are in life. It doesn't necessarily have to be a physical prison, but wherever they are, they can say, "Well, if he can do that from where he is, then I can do that from where I am." And that's my goal. I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about how you landed in prison and how this newfound passion, whether or not you feel like if you had had this before, it could have affected your life before you came to prison. I've always had music. So I don't think that I would have, having music would have changed my direction. Honestly, I don't know what could have changed my direction. I am fully persuaded that this was the trajectory of my life, was to land in prison and be convicted of 25 years of life and to stand here on this phone and tell you that this is where my life has come to. And the reason I believe that is because I would not have listened to anyone based off of the trauma that I experienced as a young as a young man. No one could have come to me with any sort of idea or authority or prestige outside of particular a particular lifestyle that I would have listened to. So, no, I don't think that having this would have changed me. Uh, uh, being a, a, a man now who has gone through, at those, when, at, in that time, who had gone through uh, sexual abuse at home, physical abuse, trauma in the neighborhood of, you know, gun violence, uh, constantly under the threat of robbery and all these other elements and for someone to say hey I'm going to teach you opera 
I prob I don't know what I would have done to that person. I probably would have robbed them because that's of the that was the mindset that I was under. Like this guy must have money, he's from my opera and, and I need the money. Like I don't need to I don't need you to teach me anything. I need to eat food because I'm hungry and you're gonna take me to do nothing you're not gonna take me anywhere and I don't know you because I don't trust you because I I couldn't trust people that were supposed to be trusted. So no, I don't think that there was anyone or any way that I could have Indifferent. I think that I had to go through what I had to go through and land where I had to land in order to be where I am. Now, those things are difficult for me to to wrestle with because at the heart of this is someone who is no longer here, right? Um, At the crux of my change, there's this, this person who I, I murdered. And reconciling that with who I've become is the most difficult thing of all. To say that I'm better because of someone who no longer exists is appalling but true. (laughs) And I don't know any other way to say that particular thing. But I knew that I was headed somewhere, and if it wasn't prison, it probably would have been death. Because the day before... I committed my crime. I was under the threat of death. And I'm pretty sure that I would be dead. So it was either this or that. And not, I don't think there was any way that I could have shaken the amount of distrust that I had for people. The amount of trauma that I had gone through had caused me not to even... Like, I lived with a woman who didn't know my name. And I lived with her for four years. Like, she didn't even know what my real name was because I didn't trust her enough to tell her my name. People didn't know anything much about me because I didn't trust them to say I was hurting. So I didn't, uh, until I had resolved the pain I had gone through, which I was able to resolve during this prison, uh, during this incarceration, I wouldn't or couldn't have done anything other than what I was doing. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. One one question or thought I had: Have you written anything or done anything um, with your music that helped you process that or or deal with that or at all? Well, I think that that's where it is. Um, when it comes to sexual abuse, uh, I have to say that 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 doesn't necessarily um. I've never written anything about it. Those things, I think that being open about it and speaking about it is what helped me the most. Mm. Was saying it happened. I think that was the power that I needed to transfer. And because I was so, I don't, I'm not sure exactly where my, the trauma of the abuse that I suffered uh, shows in my music, but if it does, it's not intentional. Mm. Um, the intentionality of redemption or of, of or the change that it, that has come about has basically been a, been a made through honest discussion. And that's hard to say. Like, when I think about it, I get months and months around. It's hard to speak about. But it's it's come about through honest discussion and having, pe- having people around me or surround me that would support me and hear me. Because I remember, and this is not too long before I was arrested, telling someone that I had known all my life, and I still love her to this day, but I told her 
uh, you know, that, you know, I was being sexually abused or whatever case we when we were younger and who was by, and the person looked at me and said, well, if that were true, why didn't you kill him yet? And I didn't know how to answer that question. So I said something generic, like my grandmother wouldn't want have wanted me to do that, whatever the case may be. But at that point in time, I really didn't know why I hadn't. And, or how to, like, I didn't, I, like, I, it was a weird question for the statement in itself, because it immediately put me on the defense when I was trying to open myself up, you know, to a person I thought would hear me and listen to me. So just having people hear me and listen to me and say, well, look, I, I've been through this, and I don't know if you've been through it. And as the guys who actually told me, I've also been through some of the situations and conveyed to me some of the things that they've gone through. And it's those things that have made me stronger in that area, not necessarily music. Do you talk to your sister still? Because yeah. the most recent story that we heard is that you two hadn't been talking for a while, and we're just wondering if you guys keep in touch at this point. We've been talking quite regularly. She doesn't come up much because she's uh, currently getting her master's degree at Hunter University. So she's really busy. But when I call, she answers. We recently um, received uh, tablets and with the capabilities of texting. And we've texted each other. So I don't know why anyone would say we're not in contact, but we are now fairly regularly and we and we're writing music together wow so we've written yeah we've written at least two songs in the last few months so these are contemporary r&b or soul songs and how does it what does that process look like do you guys talk on the phone and then like sing each other some parts or how does that work um a few ways the first song we wrote actually we wrote it on the visiting in the visiting room mm-hmm we sat down, she had an idea, and I expounded on the idea. I went back, um, put the accompaniment to it, sent it out to her. She had someone play it for her. Uh, yeah, a lot, uh, I had to, once I composed the accompaniment, I would go to the, to the, the phone booth, and some, I would have to ask the guys, you know, to please bear with me because I'm about to play some loud music. So I would play my keyboard through the microphone so she can approve or disapprove of whatever she likes or dislikes and we work it's a it's tedious it's this i mean if we were to be able to like be side by side with an instrument we could turn out some things but like i said barriers because of barriers uh things you know the process is a, a little longer but we get it done you know and so it's like she might sometimes she'll send me something in the, in the mail with a melody a melody line which she did most recently which is only going to premiere at a uh, tedx just send me a melody line with some words and say, okay, this is the idea. And I'll, and I'll just take it in and, and fold it into a song and add a bridge, uh, things of that nature, and we work it out. Do you mind if sharing maybe some of the, the themes of the songs you two have written together? Well, this latest song is actually about a lesbian relationship and heartbreak. Is this the heartbreak that she was experiencing when you guys started to reconnect? I think we heard that yes, story. Right. Exactly. So do you two talk openly about her relationships now? We have. Yeah. We have. She spoke to me extensively about that particular relationship in particular. 
So there was a lot of things I learned mm-hmm. about her you know, by listening to her and how she handled relationships and being in particular relationships. Also, it told me a lot about who she is as a person, like where her heart is, how much she's willing to, to withstand in a relationship, those type of things. It was really eye-opening to see how she, you know, because when you deal with love, it's a different component, well, amorous love. It's a different component from sisterhood, brotherhood, so forth and so on. Yeah. So to learn those things about her was really interesting. Yeah, do you think she uses music in a similar way that you do? Like perhaps this the song is like a way for her to process some of her emotions? At that time, that's, that's exactly what right. it was. And I, that's why I wanted to um, showcase it because I don't think there's enough... I mean, they're, they're heartbreak songs, and they're usually about how much, you know, how, or how badly they were treated, the person was treated, or that, you know, men, guys are no good, or what, you know, those, those are the usual suspects or the usual tropes in which people use to write these types of songs, but I didn't want that to be this particular trope, and I wanted, I definitely wanted to, you know, for it to resemble a, you know, a relationship between two women, which I, you know, I haven't necessarily heard many songs about that particular thing, and also make it relatable to people who are in whatever or varying relationships or monogamous, uh, monoamorous, polyamorous, you know, relationships, whatever floats your boat. But I want you to be able to you know understand. Look, I've I've been hurt, and I think we all understand that. In the opera that you're writing, how many parts are there? Like, how many people would you do you need to? to be singing? Well, there's about seven to eight people. Wow. And if I could get a, a children's choir, I would love that. If not, then I would just have some people double up mm-hmm. and sing uh, chorally. But the people that I'm aiming for are definitely Joyce Donato, who happens to be a friend of mine, Ryan Speedo Green, and Angel Blue. Those are my top three. Nice. How long have you been working on this for? It's been a few years. A few years. Uh, yeah. Coming up on three years now, but I think that this, I can say between in the last year, it's changed. It's morphed a lot into you know, like, so my, my understanding of musicality has changed, tonality has changed, story writing has changed. So what it was in the beginning, is it no longer is. A lot of the concepts that I had, I realized, uh, were too thick, and I had to like chop a lot out, you know, which is like what John tells me about when, when he's writing. Well, you know, some things are just not going to make it, you know, I have to whittle this down and make sure that this sentence is is, is uh, short and concise and that it makes the impact that it needs to make. And in order for me to make that same impact, I had to take a lot of the things that I thought I could out because I want to make I want to be able to send this message and for people to get this message and enjoy what they saw and heard. So, and also, you know, the auto, the drama and the climax ending the spill. So all of those things I had to learn, and, and uh, I'm still kind of in school for that, but it's, it's really gotten more serious in the last year or so. That's awesome. Well, we're excited to see what you do. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Thank you so much for hopping on the phone with us and telling us all about yourself and your life. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. And not necessarily for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, I know I really admire John. I think that I love to see his vision, and I love to see his tenacity and how it all it works out for him. And I think that the 
being around him has caused me to be even more tenacious because I had, like I said, I had aspirations and I said, yeah, I can do this. But to see people like John and Kenyatta Hughes and, and, and Lawrence Bartley and these other names of people who have gone on or are here and are doing things beyond what people think or expect inspires me every day. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Before we let you go, is there anything else that you wanted to share or anything else you thought of that you'd like to make sure we include? I love my wife and my daughter, Faithful Moore Wilson and Renee Wilson. I will always love you. Thank you for being there for me. I appreciate you. Thanks for the stance from JPEG. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. This is a collect call from Sing Sing. It's produced by Jeff DeRay, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater, with help from Elena Garcia, Jack Greenbaum, and Devin Sherman. Special thanks to Norm Pattis, Peter Morris, Elizabeth Baquet, and Rachel Yanover. Follow John on Twitter at John J. Lennon One and check out his work at johnjlennon.org. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. 